Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing wonderful, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. Just a little sleepy from the long weekend, I think. Yeah, we're kind of bookending the weekend with episodes here, Friday and Tuesday. I, I still can't wrap my mind around today being Tuesday. I've been thinking it's Monday all day long. It's true. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are in that same boat. It won't hurt my feelings when Friday comes a little faster, though. <laughs> yes. Yes, I agree with that. Very much so. <laughs> I have Friday off, so um, it'll be a, a good weekend. Good. Good. Yeah. That, that, that sounds great. Another three-day weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we got today? So today we are talking about monkeypox. All right. So a, a little bit of a, an interesting episode, I think, to say the least. Yeah, a special one. We love special episodes. I think they've all turned into special episodes. <laughs> Every single episode is special. <laughs> so today we have Dr. Angela Hewlett and Dr. David Brett Major on with us to talk about monkeypox, what it is, and all of the fun things that are associated with monkeypox and what is going on right now in a global setting. Great. Yeah. Welcome to both of you. I'll, I'll let you guys just kind of remind us uh, what your roles are, because um, I think that'll be a big part of why we asked you to join us today to talk about this. So, Angela, go ahead and start. All right. Well, I'm uh, Angela Hewlett. I'm an associate professor of infectious diseases uh, here at uh, University of Nebraska Medical Center. Um, I am the medical director of the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit, um, hence my uh, probably my presence on this, because monkeypox is a uh, is definitely something that we've been thinking about for a while actually now um obviously coming in coming into play very significantly within the world so um so yeah so i deal with uh bio preparedness and um you know a lot of aspects of preparedness and infection control here at the hospital and david david brett major uh, like the good professor hewlett i'm an in internal medicine and infection and the good dr starlin i'm uh, <laughs> internal medicine infectious diseases physician in the ID division of, of Nebraska Medicine. My primary academic work is in the College of Public Health, where I'm a professor of epidemiology. And I, I uh, like those here, I, I do a lot of work with the Global Center for Health Security. Awesome. Thank you so much both for joining us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, and welcome back. We've had you both on before, so everybody will recognize your voices and, and it's good to have you. Um, so one of you wants to start, you know, what is monkeypox? You know, something you get from monkeys or is that just a kind of a misnomer and, and is the name of something uh, that, you know, is out there? Yeah, so, so with, with the eradication of, of smallpox, which is the archetype pox virus that we, we think about, unless you're an infectious diseases subspecialist, in which case you've had at least one board question about ORF. <laughs> otherwise, if you're not an ID subspecialist taking a test and you're not talking about the eradication of, of smallpox, which was the human reservoir, human amplified, human transmission and human burden pox, what you, what you have left are zoonotic spillover 
diseases caused by an array of viruses. And we, we think of, while well, also no longer common, cowpox, which was the progenitor for vaccination in lieu of inoculation. So several hundred years ago, people realized that small inoculations, introductions of smallpox prevented people from worse disease. And then eventually, we all know our medical history, Dr. Jenner inoculated uh, some unsuspecting volunteer villagers with vaccinia, cowpox, and from vaccinia, we get the word vaccination. But that is, that is one of several examples of pox viruses that spill over. One, another is monkeypox, called because of its non-human primate reservoir, at least where it was identified to, to have been present. There's tanapox, but not rickettsial pox. Rickettsial pox is actually from rickettsia cari, and, and that, that's something completely different, and that's an archaea bacteria. But monkeypox outbreaks and tanapox occur from likely zoonotic events, possibly from communications from peridomestic rodents, from deeper wilderness animal reservoirs that then result in limited onward transmission in communities that have low resource, people are living in aggregate, and, and you get these clusters of outbreaks like we've seen in, in parts of Nigeria, in DRC, and in Cameroon in particular. There are two main varieties of monkeypox that we think about. Some of this is artificial, but some of this is real, where there's a, a Central African variety that we think of as a select agent as maybe being a little bit more communicable and a variety that we see in West Africa that has, that has limited onward transmission. Um, all of the pox viruses, like the skin and the mucous membranes, all of the pox viruses experience some spectrum of the ability to transmit by direct contact. And if you, if you make it available enough, through droplet and other measures. And this was particularly of concern with the Central African monkeypox variety in some community settings studied by CDC and the, the great uh, Inger Damon and other, other great scientists out of that group. And so that's um, a little bit of background for you. No, that's great. That's extremely helpful. So you talked about a lot of things there and mentioned a lot of things there. Um, the first thing you mentioned is smallpox, and so we, we might have some listeners that uh, remember a little bit about smallpox. Um, you know, it, what was, um, you know, it was a disease that people used to be immunized for back in the day, and then there was some talk, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever, you know, is it a weapon of bioterrorism and, and those kinds of things. So, um, you said this is related to smallpox, but it doesn't seem like it's a normal human pathogen. So how, how are they alike and how are they a bit different? Well, I, I can start, I guess, with that a bit. Uh, yeah. So, so the history of smallpox, I mean, I, I know, um, you know, obviously there are, there are maybe some listeners who were inoculated as children for smallpox, um, you know, that the kind of mass vaccination efforts actually stopped 
um, uh, due to the fact that smallpox was eradicated, which was, you know, was obviously a good thing. Um, the issue, though, is that now we, you know, although we think that the vaccination for smallpox protects against monkeypox, those individuals vaccinated a really long time ago. And so it's really unclear whether people that were vaccinated when they were children, um, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, you know, that sort of thing, if they have any protection left over against um, against monkeypox or even smallpox going forward, um, you know, that that vaccine is one that, you know, typically it does require a booster dose in individuals that have ongoing exposures like laboratorians, people working with smallpox in the lab, things like that. And so the thought is that the, these individuals are vaccinated a long time ago may have some residual protection may not have any at all. It's really unclear, I think, at this point. And the reason it's unclear is because we don't have any smallpox around. And so there's not really a great way to tell if someone is exposed, will they, um, you know, will they go on to develop the disease or maybe a lesser form of the disease? That's the other possibility is there may still be some residual protection, maybe against severe disease. And so if it's unclear for smallpox, to which people were vaccinated against. Um, it's also unclear for monkeypox. We do know that the vaccines that were given for smallpox um, do protect against monkeypox, and there's a newer vaccine available um, that's actually um, approved for prevention of monkeypox. But that being said, again, we're, it's really unclear whether those individuals that were previously vaccinated will have any protection um, at all. So there's a lot of susceptible people out there. Is there any talk right now about um, providing that vaccine on a large scale basis at all? You know, I haven't, and I don't know if, if my colleague would like to answer that at all. <laughs> I haven't heard any, any rumblings about providing large scale mass vaccinations. What we're dealing with right now is, um, you know, obviously a problem in multiple countries, and this is really evolving. So, you know, what's today, May 31st? I mean, this has really changed, in, especially in the last couple of weeks where we had seen some initial cases um, you know, which it's not highly unusual to see imported travel related cases to different parts of the world that has happened before one case here one case there we actually had a couple travel related cases um, in 2021 in the United States both of those individuals though had traveled from places in Africa that were known to have monkeypox outbreaks. Um, and, and you know, came here to the US. We've had cases in the UK and other parts of Europe. Um, the difference with this is that this is obviously affecting a lot more countries than we typically see. And the epidemiology is a bit different and that these are not travel related cases. These are individuals who have no history of travel or in no contact in, in most cases with anyone who had traveled. And so that, that really, um, you know, really makes this a bit different. That being said, in answer to your question, there hasn't been any talk about mass vaccination as of yet. I do think that there, and I know there are ongoing talks about doing um, some form of preventative vaccines, though, in those individuals that are potentially at risk, um, you know, individuals that have had, you know, had come into contact with individuals who had known to be infected with monkeypox or those in the healthcare setting or others uh, that may be kind of on the front lines and could potentially see patients. And so, I, you know, again, I haven't heard anything about a mass vaccination strategy. I don't think that that's warranted as of yet, but, um, you know, but probably a select vaccination strategy amongst those at higher risk, I think is, is reasonable. And that's what's being talked about and actually implemented now. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. So you, um, again, going back, what did, so getting into smallpox, monkeypox, vaccines that work for both and everything else, what did smallpox look like before it was eradicated? I mean, what, not, not clinically, what did it look like, but cases and how sick did it make people and how did it spread and mortality? And we don't have to worry about those things necessarily with monkeypox, right? It's more difficult to get, not as maybe severe in people. Is that correct? 
David, you want to answer that question? So I'm I'm going to to uh, reverse accuse you now of covering a lot of ground there in the in the in the last few minutes. So um, smallpox mortality was quite high, and 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 it, and it could range to a few percent to one in three people, right? Depending on the population that you you actually were, you know, were were focused and vaccination for smallpox had had evolved and, and become broader and broader in dissemination before focused efforts to eradicate the disease. And really smallpox vaccination followed by polio vaccination really set the, the standard for, for how we think about your earlier questions, which, which had to do with how does one ensure that vaccine that is safe and effective and available is, is distributed to those in need in a way that substantively decreases the consequences of disease. And smallpox is, is one of the archetypes for that. The, the WHO continues to maintain mostly virtually with partner countries stocks to be able to generate vaccine against smallpox. There, there is active manufacture of modified vaccinia Ankara by a couple of different manufacturers for different purposes. You, you heard it described by Professor Hewlett just moments ago regarding vaccination potentially against, against monkeypox, but also smallpox. It, it also, because it's a big hulking virus with lots and lots of genomic room in it, it's actually explored as a platform for delivery of, of other vaccine proteins. So. Uh, years ago, I was involved in actually using modified vaccine on CAR and HIV vaccine work um, as a way to express glycoprotein and from the envelope for, for people to, to have an immunogenic response. And it was actually in the mix for one of the Glasgow SmithKline products um, for, excuse me, the, the Janssen product for Ebola virus disease, um, which was an AD26 vectored followed by modified vaccinia and CARA, you know, boosted product. So, so vaccinia in its various forms and vaccine manufacture, and there's tons of experience with it and, and it's, it is largely safe. Um, it, it ha it's gotten more safe with attenuated forms such as the Judeus product that Professor Hewlett mentioned. And, and so vaccine on a large scale is possible but it does require buildup. The difference between the, the kind of surge that we saw for SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, where people were using old technologies, well, older technologies, not old, old technologies, that they applied to SARS-CoV-2 that they had been working on for malaria and other vaccines for quite some time, the messenger RNA platforms, they finally got them to work and they focused on a new threat. In this case, the threat targets are known and, and the vehicles are known. And, and so scale up is, is, you know, is feasible, but I, I, the nature of the spread is, is lower. So what did smallpox look like before eradication in the sixties? You know, the last case was in Somalia in the late seventies. And that gentleman became quite famous and an advocate for smallpox vaccine. He, he had not yet been vaccinated. I think at 15 years old, when he, when he uh, engaged a, a car with a couple of kids with smallpox who were from a nomadic tribe and and it uh, manifesting the diseases is lots of vaccination, lots of constitutive exposure to smallpox that, that kept immunity going. All right, that's enough of a ramble. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. That is great. Um, so talking about 
the different outbreaks that we've had in the past. Um, can we talk a little bit about what this current outbreak is looking like and what makes it different than some of our past outbreaks of monkeypox? Yeah, I mean, I can start with that and then definitely uh, let my uh, my colleague chime in on that for sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, in the past, and as Dr. Brett Major mentioned, um, you know, there are definitely countries in Africa that have been really severely and kind of ongoing, um, you know, uh, affected by, by monkeypox, uh, particularly um, uh, Nigeria, the DRC, as he mentioned. And and those areas, though, you know, again, we would see these sporadic travel-related cases, individuals that would come from those areas um, and, you know, uh, go to a different part of the world and, and get sick. Um, you know, we'd seen cases like that in the United States. Um, we actually had a fairly large outbreak in the United States back in 2003, and this one became a bit famous because um, it was sort of a travel-related case, I guess you would call it the initial issue, and that these were um, these were actually linked to rodents. Uh, there were, I think, 47 cases actually in the United States in 2003, mostly in the Midwest area. And what had happened is there were some a variety of different rodents. Um, I know the the most famous of the group were the giant Gambian rats, um, who were imported from Africa, and they were housed at a, a facility. Um, and apparently, that facility had some connection with another facility that were there were prairie dogs there, and those those prairie dogs were sold off as pets and then um, there were you know again 47 cases of individuals who had uh, had these prairie dogs as pets and became infected with monkeypox um, you know so that that was that was a, a fairly large outbreak in the United States that as I said was sort of travel related I guess you know if you consider the Gambian rats coming from overseas um, but you know again we'd seen sporadic cases here and there we had a couple of cases here in the U.S. in 2021 both in and travelers the difference here is this is much, much wider. Number one, it's affecting a lot of countries all around the world. Um, as of my last look, there were 23 countries who had identified uh, confirmed cases of monkeypox, which is incredibly unusual. And I think in the beginning, we all kind of knew this was a bit different because, you know, we started seeing there were a couple of cases identified in the UK. And then all of a sudden there were cases in Spain and, you know, other places. And it's, it's like, this is not characteristic of what, what normally we had seen with, you know, travel related cases isolated here and there. And so um, we pretty quickly knew that there was going to be something different about this. I, I again, 257 confirmed cases as of, um, as of, I think, a couple of days ago throughout the world and 15 confirmed cases here in the U.S. as of yesterday. So, um, you know, that is a bit different. Um, so, you know, again, the, the epidemiology of this, I think, is going to become, you know, much more, um, clear hopefully as as time goes on but it does seem that they're linking at least the initial cases um, to a specific risk group and that is individuals who identify as men who have sex with men um, that i think it seems was how it started that being said we definitely don't want to um, you know limit this to one specific group in the fact that you know this is a disease that is transmissible and um, it can be transmissible via multiple routes. And so those initial cases may have been in that specific population, but we have to be really careful um, on not only stigmatizing one population, but also saying this is the only population that is going to be affected by monkeypox, because that's obviously not true. And not all of the cases are in the MSM population either. So um, I think, you know, again, we need to be vigilant and not necessarily, you know, identify this one specific population and say, well, that's it. You know, you have to be, um, you have to, uh, you know, to have be part of that population in order to be at risk, because that's not true. Um, that being said, again, it does seem like, and the, the, what I've learned about some of the cases is, is these cases, a lot of them are very mild from a clinical standpoint. 
um, you know, they often will have just a, a few lesions, maybe even a solitary lesion in, a, in one case that I became aware of. And, you know, that is something that this disease is marked by the presence of a rash. And that's how people typically seek medical care. Um, you know, it starts with a prodrome where people have, you know, fever and chills and headache and feel poorly and weakness and things like that. Most of the time that in itself does not necessarily you know, cause people to seek medical care. But when the rash comes on a few days later, it is fairly characteristic. Um, but again, in this outbreak, some of these individuals are not very sick. Some of them have had no prodrome, at least if they can recall. Um, and they also may have, you know, a very small number of, of lesions present where it makes it very difficult to differentiate this from um, other diseases. And some of these individuals are presenting with lesions, you know, in the genital area, which, you know, sort of makes us think about sexual transmission, which, you know, again, sexual transmission versus just close contact transmission also is difficult to differentiate, but um, but this just, it's a, a different type of outbreak than what we have seen, at least in our travel related cases in the past. And I'll stop rambling now. I, I feel like, I feel like both of us could really talk about this topic over and over again. And I think we're both sort of, um, all of us are probably intrigued just by, you know, by how this has unfolded, uh, just because it is so different than what we've seen before. So I don't know if my colleagues have anything else they want to add to that ramble, but <laughs> or I'm happy to continue to ramble about something else if you can ask me the question. <laughs> I, I I think that's well described. I you know the, there there is on the WHO website www.who.int. If one goes to the disease outbreak news, it's it's the top report right now in the disease outbreak news, and there's a nice running tally uh, and one of the things that is cool about about this particular release is it is it gives two tables and then the first table and a map is demonstrative of just what professor Hewlett was saying just just the, the the geographic range coupled with the scale of of this particular series of events and it juxtaposes it with the community-based, community-focused outbreaks that have happened in recent memory, and it's just interesting to see to see these things side by side. And and I, I think I think there are some things about monkeypox that that make it effective at becoming a little bit broader in geographic scope. You know what one is is that, like most conditions, there are only less than a handful of conditions where this is not the case, but like most conditions, there, there are asymptomatic infections that are still relevant for transmission. Um, it has a relatively long incubation period. I mean, the incubation period for SARS-CoV-2 is probably less than a day to a couple of days, right? For flu, it's a day to a few days for viral hemorrhagic fevers, in particular the filoviruses, it's probably eight to 10 days, but for monkeypox, it, it really can be out a few weeks. And, and so that means that individuals can be somewhat far afield um, from where they were before and, and maybe not even reflective of, of contacts that may have happened and how they might've been exposed by the time that, that symptoms present. Um, one of the things that makes and a little tricky with anoreceptive intercourse and transmission is, is of course, the, well, the gut is a lot of, a lot of mucosa. And, and so you can actually have burden of monkeypox without necessarily having it in a visible location, um, which, which is a, an in interesting feature. Um, but to Professor Hewlett's point, I mean, to ignore, frankly, 
um, the possibility of sexually transmitted infection being relevant for, for a variety of threats is one to ignore everything we've learned about sexual health over several decades, that there's no one member or section of the population that participates in a unique sexual practice. And also everything is pretty much uh, capable of becoming a sexually transmitted infection. And so I think being mindful of, of that is, is true as well. So it, you know, it, how it's behaving in its small clusters where somebody actually ends up and interacts with others is so far been pretty typical of monkeypox. You know, we, we've not seen prolific onward propagation of the disease into communities where people have gone. That's just not been the nature of what's been observed. Um, but but it's, also, it's also true that the more, another lesson that now that everybody is an epidemiologist and I don't, ha I don't have to worry about doing it so much anymore, everyone knows now that the more pr case pressure that you have, the more opportunity for mutation and change in effect, right? And so everything is an interaction between host, pathogen, and environment. So pathogen, if you have lots and lots of pathogen around, it has an opportunity for mutation. Host, eventually, if you allow propagation to occur, it will find the right host for propagation that matters to a community. And so many of us who, who've been vaccinated more than once, not only because old people have experienced stuff, but also for me as a veteran, I had to get it at least once, if not twice over the years as, as part of force health protection. Um, we don't go home after the inoculation if we have someone at home with eczema, right? So, so there, there are populations where, where this, if it does get a foothold, we might worry more about not only the direct consequence in terms of an outcome in an individual, but, but also the opportunity for, for available virus for transmission. So all of it is, is worthy, worthy to watch. Do we have any idea on the index case or where any of this started yet? I can say what um, what I've read in the media and also the WHO does have a fair amount of information about this. Um, it sounds like that there is some linkage between a large a couple of large events actually um, that occurred in Europe, um, uh, which were sort of categorized as large parties or raves. Um, it sounds like that that was possibly one of the or the initial kind of propagating event. Um, but again, that being said, um, I think we're we're still learning about all of that going on because obviously all of these individuals that have been identified thus far um, did not attend those events. And so how is this being transmitted? Um, is it, you know, again, as, as Dr. Brett Major mentioned, sexual transmission, this may be something that had been ongoing in Africa. Maybe this was sort of an underrecognized, um, you know, method of transmission for a long time. I mean, that's a possibility as well versus, uh, you know, a, an evolving, um, you know, evolving uh, mode of transmission. So, you know, again, I think we're learning a whole lot about that, but it sounds like, which, you know, it does make some sense. A lot of people in very close contact, you know, this disease is something that's transmitted um, via close contact, whether that's, you know, very close sort of droplet spread versus, um, you know, close contact with bodily secretions and other things. So I, you know, I, I guess that when you think about though, the number of cases that occurred, when I first heard about this, I thought there has to be some large event that happened because, you know, you don't have all of these cases all of a sudden pop up all around the world from this disease without having some sort of a, um, you know, some sort of a, again, a large event where people would come together in close proximity. And if, you know, we've all been to concerts before and things like that, 
obviously that's a that's a space where people are in very very close contact so so again to me that that sort of theory as of yet seems to make some sense um but we'll see i don't know if we have any if you have any other comments on that but i think we're learning a lot more about this obviously as time goes on yeah, I think people are familiar with a kind of a super spreader event where we talked about COVID, you know, certain things over the last time. So I think everybody can kind of conceptualize that. Now, you mentioned that, you know, this has a kind of a prolonged incubation period. Do we know when people are contagious? Um, do they, can they shed it for a while before symptoms, after symptoms? Do we know if some people can continue to shed this virus? I mean, are those things that we know at this point or or is it, you know, right before you get the, the pox, it sheds when you get the pox, once you recover, you're no longer contagious? Um, I, I think our, um, oh, I'm sorry, did you wanna go ahead? No, go ahead. You can, yeah. so, so I think our, our lesson from smallpox is, is, that, is that virus was available for transmission before the classic lesions. And, and the a large difference, however, between smallpox and monkeypox is, is monkeypox does not seem to have the ready propensity for dissemination off of mucosal membranes like aerosol movement in rooms in the way that smallpox did. So, so probably um, be, we think in general that droplet or even aerosol in the absence of procedure transmission is less common with monkeypox. That probably means that pre-lesion transmission is also less common with monkeypox, but it depends where your lesions are, right? And, and where you see them and encounter them. And it is probably the case um, we, we certainly uh, understood this to be the case with vaccinia, that once your lesion is resolved, your, your, transmit, your opportunity to provide virus for onward transmission is, is less as well. But people differ, right? We also learned, so this is not a pox virus at all, but just as an example, with chicken pox, not a pox, right? Um, a, pox, a pox among us, but not a pox virus. <laughs> um, so with chicken pox, with varicella infection, we learned very early that even though we all thought that young healthy people, for instance, didn't have any disease past their skin lesions, we learned among recruits in the military very early on, actually no, lots of them actually had a varicella pneumonia. And, and so it is conceivable that there are escalating syndromes in occasional individuals where they are transmissible earlier or transmissible longer and transmissible and clinical syndromes where a rash is not present, but that's not really what we've seen yet um, with, with monkeypox. But people can surprise us when case pressure is allowed to go unchecked, like in COVID-19, get primary vaccinated, Nebraska. <laughs> Just now do you, it, right? Yeah, just do it. <laughs> Question then, and you know, we talked about the sexual transmission of this. Is it really then just the skin contact with the pox and the lesions, or is there any evidence that this is actually in sexual secretions at all? Yeah, I think that is also evolving. I, I would say that obviously that direct contact with the lesions, you know, it does seem that some of the individuals that have um, presented have had lesions in their general area. And so, you know, just by, by nature, it would kind of make sense that close contact, you know, you could potentially uh, transmit just that way, but then also potentially bodily fluids as well. And so, you know, we, there are plenty of other diseases that are transmitted that way. And I wouldn't be very surprised if, um, if that also has a, a component also um, in this, in this transmission. But again, um, it could also just be that, that close contact with the lesions themselves. 
Um, that's something that's a bit different about these, you know, this rash as opposed to the rash of some other diseases that we think about, or um, you know, um, you know, other types of rashes, is that, you know, like smallpox, the the rash is actually the, you know, the lesions themselves are actually really the contagious part of this disease. It's not necessarily, it's not airborne droplet, you know, that's not the primary mode of transmission. It's really going to be close contact with those lesions. And so, um, but the, the tricky part about this current situation that we're seeing is that, as I mentioned earlier, some of these individuals don't have a lot of characteristic lesions. So they're not necessarily presenting to the emergency department with this horrible rash and everybody's just sort of saying, oh gosh, it has to be monkeypox or it has to be, you know, whatever. Um, that's, it's, a, it's a lot more insidious than that, it seems. And so some of these individuals are presenting to their primary care providers, they're presenting to, um, you know, various, um, you know, STD clinics and other things if the lesions are in the genital area. And so that, that's what is making this a bit uh, a bit difficult is that, you know, again, this is not, there's, there's always a spectrum of disease with every illness. And this one seems to definitely have a wide clinical spectrum, everything from very asymptomatic to a couple of lesions to, you know, more diffuse disease that would be, you know, um, higher or easier to identify, I guess, um, you know, when people come in. That being said, I just also, just to add on to that, there are a lot of diseases that cause diffuse rash. So, um, you know, it is, it um, is not always easy to differentiate, you know, just, you know, looking at an individual, a lot of those diseases also have a prodrome of fever and chills and things like that. So it's, um, it's not always easy to identify these cases, but, um, you know, there are some, you know, some signs in, uh, in monkeypox and smallpox that actually, you know, the lesions are, are typically go through kind of a, um, a, um, progression where they are in the same stage of development. So you're not seeing one lesion that looks like something and one that looks like something else on a, you know, a different part of the body. Um, they're, you know, they can look like um, a variety though, as they go through that stage, they can start like, you know, just more, um, more of a, you know, sort of red, um, we call them macules, kind of red area, um, and then progress to the papules, vesicles, and then the more characteristic of the pustules, which, you know, again, look like the pictures in the textbook per se, um, and then go on to, you know, have scabs that eventually fall off. So, um, you know, again, lots, lots of different diseases though can cause rash. So we have to be really vigilant about, you know, looking for these, um, you know, these individuals and making sure that we're identifying them up front um, if, we're, if we're concerned about monkeypox. What sort of tests are used to identify if a person has monkeypox? If you get there, like with clinical symptoms. <laughs> yeah, so you actually have to sample one of the lesions um, is how it typically is identified. And that is where you just, you know, take it sort of unroof one of the lesions, which so take a little sample of one of the lesions itself. And then um, the CDC, as well as some reference laboratories actually have uh, tests that they can identify, um, you know, whether we're dealing with pox, number one, and then whether we're dealing with monkey pox um, would be the, the secondary identification. I don't know, Dave, if you want to add anything about any of the diagnostics that are available, that's the primary way to diagnose this though. Yeah, and I, I think that's the, the way that people ought to be thinking about it. And it is a nucleic acid-based test. And then um, at in addition to CDC's managed laboratory reference network or referral network at the LRN at, at Atlanta, um, they're, they're also able to, to identify through sequencing which, which monkeypox it is and associate it with the outbreak being discussed currently, as well as other, other sources of, of acquisition and transmission. So 
it's a useful thing to do to test. Yeah, we we tend to we have this uh, we tend to have this gate theory of using referral tests where where somebody has a concern and then they call and they ask to use a test and there's a whole bunch of of questions about whether or not the test will be applied in that scenario, understandably because they don't want to create a situation where they use a test willy nilly and end up with a bunch of false positives. On the other hand. When you're, when you're trying to understand the scope of an event early and do early case capture, well, you, you kind of have to test with liberality and apply a lot of vigilance and, and have a low activation energy for referral. So, so I would ask that people not magnify <laughs> the, our system's concern about making sure you get a, a, a result you know what to do with and let that burden be on them. That is, seek testing early. When in doubt, just ask. You know, if if uh, if if in the process of having sent a specimen for testing, it ends up not being tested, or or it tests negative, or even results in a false positive that has to be reevaluated with with follow-on evaluation, that that's okay. So at this time, if somebody had a rash, I mean, you might have some index of suspicion. Is there certain things that you might ask the person or get in the history that might point you? away or towards it that that you know people can use we have some people you know not everybody that listens to us is at you know nebraska medical center and has you guys to just pick up the phone and say hey i got this patient but what what should they be kind of asking about and looking for yeah monkeypox can be a little tricky in the following way when when we so those of us who may remember the cold war uh, that we seem to be re-entering again and and we we learned a lot about chemical, biological, radiologic, and nuclear events in the community. And we learned about smallpox and we, we learned about broadly erupting peripheral and then centrally migrating lesions, all of the same size and all of the same morphology. Um, it gets a little bit harder to think that way in monkeypox and tanapox because you can have very regional distributions of spread. And so it can be right around one area of lymph nodes. It can be in one compartment. Um, it may not be seen right away. It may or may not be on the palms or soles. But, but as a general concept for me, I'll be interested what, what both of you think about this as well. And you too, Sarah, do you have a view on this? But, um, but for me, it's still worthwhile to ask those characteristic morphology questions. Are they at the same stage? Describe the pustule. Is it a pustular rash? Are they at the same phase? Is there an erythematous base? are any located peripherally? And, and I think those same stepwise questions are useful to, to raise your level of suspicion, but unfortunately they're not particularly useful to lower your level of suspicion. <laughs> but I, I, I'm curious what y'all think about that. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I, I, I think that a lot of these diseases and, and this one obviously is behaving very different than we read about in textbooks. And, um, and so we have to really keep that in mind when we're thinking about evaluating patients and whether, you know, a person is high or low risk on the traditional, you know, um, uh, sort of epidemiologic criteria and the traditional appearance of the rash that you would think about from a textbook may not necessarily apply here. And that's something that, um, that yeah, it can get really tricky. And so we have to just, I, I would say, continue to maintain a high index of suspicion for people, um, you know, that have a rash and um, determine whether they need testing or not. I, I will say that something that I'm concerned about is that right now the current um, case definition is really more focused on travel, um, you know, and MSM population. And I, I, I do, 
I am worried that we'll miss cases that way. And so, you know, just focusing if, if we if we say, oh, this individual, the rash, you know, this can't be monkeypox because they didn't travel anywhere and they don't identify as MSM, then we're going to we're going to miss some cases. And so that's something that I do. I am concerned about. And I, I agree with um, with David. that I think that we should you know, we should use the testing if we need to on individuals where even if we feel like it's sort of a, a low you know, low index of suspicion at first. I'm not sure that we should necessarily trust our intuitions um, in this situation where everything is pretty new. I think we have to remember that, you know, diseases have that, you know, that constellation of and kind of a continuum of disease. And we have to remember that, you know, these patients may be mildly ill, they may present in a typical way. It may be very different from what we read about um, and what we all learned in, you know, in school. Yeah. And, and I, the picture you see on the infectious diseases board exam, probably is not characteristic of what's going on now. Um, but remember, if you see somebody with any sort of pox looking lesion, think about smallpox and monkeypox for sure. Or as we mentioned, ORF, I, I do remember that one um, from the ID boards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, you used to say, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, what do you think of? Well, nowadays you have to think of monkeypox. I mean, you, you can't not, so I agree. I mean, if you go back a few months ago, I don't know if I'd have said the same thing, that would have been the zebra, but now the zebra has become a horse. Uh, so I, I think you have to think of it. So I, I agree with everything you guys have said. Are there um, certain areas of the country that providers should be more vigilant in right now? Or just everybody? Everybody. Everybody stay aware. Okay. Well, the cases have been identified all around the country. I mean, and, you know, I mean, everywhere from the East Coast to Florida to Colorado, you know, Utah, California. I mean, yeah. So there's there's not really a a specific area anymore you know that we need to look at i mean most of the time when cases are imported for travel you get some hint of travelers or when you have individuals that are you know are presenting to you know if you have major major hub airport type of scenario where there are direct flights to whatever country is you know is affected then we start to kind of see cases at that area sort of like we did with COVID initially but yeah then after that there's really not a not a risk area per se I think when we spoke last week, it was, uh, we'd mentioned, discussed that most of the patients were actually outpatients. They actually weren't ill enough to be admitted to the hospital. So they may just show up in a clinic, an urgent care. So, I mean, all those people have to be vigilant because they're not really going to be, sounds like really sick, you know, that they're going to be bought in by a squad because they're, you know, in extremists or anything like that. So a lot of them, you know, you see that way, but then they're going back into the community and home. And so, you know, what are you telling people or, or telling people to tell people about maybe their family or their friends or loved ones or whatever, you know, hey, I think I might have monkey pox. You know, what do I do? You know, how do I not spread this to other people? Well, I mean, if someone is diagnosed with monkeypox, um, then, you know, and as you mentioned, a lot of these cases, these are outpatients. So these are not people who are going in the hospital and staying there for the duration of their illness and that kind of thing. Most of these individuals are going home. Now, with that being said, they're going home under the supervision of the local health department. And so um, they are the ones who typically advise, you know, family members, you know, whether we need to do, um, you know, a sort of vaccination strategy around those family members because they had exposure, um, you know, this, how to isolate the individual. So that you know, we can ensure that there aren't ongoing exposure. So all of that is really directed by the local health departments when an individual is an outpatient. Obviously, if they're in the hospital, then um, you know, then you know, an individual is under isolation. You know, that sort of thing for the duration of their illness, or at least until they're 
um, their uh, uh, scabs fall off is kind of the the typical way that we do that. But um, but yeah, as an outpatient, you know, and a lot of these people, I, I would say the, the vast majority of these individuals have not been hospitalized, which is great. You know, I'm glad that people are not getting extremely ill with this, although the disease can can cause, you know, some more severe manifestations, particularly in immunosuppressed populations, um, you know, and, and certain individuals. So it can be a severe disease, but it seems thus far that uh, luckily the vast majority of the cases have been relatively mild. Um, and as far as I understand it, there have been no deaths um, that I am aware of. So, so again, you know, definitely, um, uh, but, you know, we also have to remember that the, the kind of mortality rate that's been reported for monkeypox, you know, the, that is a different, a different scenario. So a lot of these individuals are presenting in countries with a, you know, very high standard for healthcare, you know, they, I mean, they're either in hospitals or not, or they're being closely monitored and that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the mortality rates that have been reported and were are based in Africa, and a lot of those individuals are not don't necessarily have access to healthcare. Um, you know, if they should become severely ill, and so it may be a very different, and I imagine it is a very different mortality rate um, in uh, parts of the world that have healthcare access. And that's the same thing that we've seen with Ebola virus disease. You know, when we care for individuals with, an, you know, in an intensive care unit, and that kind of thing, it makes a, a big difference um, as far as the, you know, the outcome. And so that's just something to remember with this too. Is that's really what we're seeing is, you know, um, a wide array of of clinical presentations, it seems, uh, with mostly mild illness that so far has been observed. Just as another point to that, just while, before I forget, um, monkeypox is a disease, and just as a representative of the biocontainment unit, it is a disease that if we did have an individual that was severely ill and required medical care, and they presented you know, to our emergency department, it is a disease that we we would place that patient in the biocontainment unit as of this moment. Um, that being said, this disease is one that can be cared for in a non-biocontainment environment. And I think a, a hospital with good infection control uh, practices, you know, um, can easily care for a patient with monkeypox. And so this is something that, you know, should be remembered. And the fact that the individuals that have required medical care here in the U.S. have not all been in biocontainment settings in any way. And so, um, so that is something to remember that, you know, you know, this is not a disease that we would necessarily transfer around to a biocontainment unit or any of that. You know, again, if we, because we have a unit here, we probably would use it, uh, but I don't think it's necessary as long as you have those good infection control precautions in place. Would you use some contact and droplet? Would you, you wouldn't need negative pressure without this being spread that way? Or would you do that just out of caution? Well, in our biocontainment unit, it's all negative pressure. So we, we would, right. put, if you have a negative pressure room available, I think it's totally reasonable to use it. Um, I don't think that negative pressure is mandated, particularly if you're not doing aerosol generated procedures. Um, so if you, you know, if, if your hospital does not have a negative pressure room, then, then again, uh, um, or there's not one available, I think Patients can be very safely cared for with good personal protective equipment, you know, and as long as it's a, you know, a, um, a single patient room, dedicated bathroom, um, you know, healthcare workers have appropriate PPE and that kind of thing. But, but yeah, I know, you know, this is not something that is absolutely mandated to go in negative pressure rooms either. Um, we probably, because we have a lot of negative pressure rooms here, I imagine that we probably would put a monkeypox patient in a negative pressure room, um, but just because we have them available. Yeah, and the, the CDC emphasizes that that point as well. Yeah, so one of the things that the good Professor Hewlett made me do at one point uh, was uh, interview Captain Morale from the CDC's Pox program for the 
regional disaster programming done out of UNMC and other in other regions. And one of the interesting things that that she said was that um, was that bad cases of of monkeypox look look a lot like burn patients. And and so that that does bring the point that you know the skin really matters, and and if you have a focal involvement from monkeypox or something else, you you might think a little bit about supervening infection and and those issues of bacterial sepsis and, and such that that can result. And if you have lots of coverage, then you could from monkeypox lesions, then then you could envision a scenario where volume management, um, aggressive wound care uh, become electrolyte balance become become really uh, challenging situations that require a lot of intervention proximity and escalation. And so so that that should probably be in the calculus as well, of course, right? With with whichever medical system is is thinking about this, absolutely can manage an uncomplicated, even uncomplicated, hospitalized monkeypox case. But once you start thinking that that the the condition is advancing, you know, understanding the pathways with with your region's referral center for for higher level of care that does make sense. Yeah, that's a totally very, very, very important point. Just in that the sicker the patient, the more likely it is that, you know, that transmission could potentially occur, um, you know, in the hospital environment. And so, yeah, if you've got a, a needing hospitalization, but relatively well individuals where the lesions are, you know, can be contained and that kind of thing, that's a very big difference from an individual who is critically ill and needing lots of interventions and has, you know, as, you know, as Dr. Major mentioned, you know, a diffuse rash and, and we know that the rash, um, that the, um, you know, the rash itself and, and the lesions are very contagious. And so just, just, yeah, there, there's a very wide spectrum of clinical illness. Most hospitals then I think, you know, care for, um, for a patient with monkeypox um, with appropriate precautions. But yeah, if you do have an individual that is very critically ill and requiring burn-like care, then I, I do think that's a whole different scenario. And that, um, you know, that's why we have NETIC, right? I mean, we have 10 regional centers as well as other state designated centers that um, have that those negative pressure isolation rooms and have those dedicated teams and PPE training and all the things that, you know, that we practice and preach in the biocontainment unit. Um, and the, the, that's the type of patient that I would envision if we were to care for a patient in the Nebraska biocontainment unit, it would either be someone who presented locally here uh, you know, in, in Omaha um, versus someone who was very critically ill and needed to be transferred here for a higher level of care, um, which we do with all, lots of other diseases, right? I mean, we transfer to tertiary academic centers for higher level of care and lots of other things too. And it would be a similar scenario and the fact that we have our dedicated team and can provide that, um, that high level of care in our safe environment. If they are, if they have a severe patient and they're not able to transfer it to a dedicated care unit, like the biocontainment unit, um, what additional types of training would you recommend for that team? Oh, well, I think people need to do whatever's in their usual scope of care. And, and that, and you, you absolutely don't want to make um, a, a medical group try to do something more complicated with higher risk for the patient in an, in an environment and in, in a structure where they're, where it's clumsier to do those steps, right? So, so in terms of medical interventional training, no, they, they need to develop their scope of care and systems of care and care of systematic approaches to critically ill patients according to their remit. And they, they are either equipped to, to do that at escalating levels of 
infection prevention control posture and practice, or, or they are not. Um, and, and most places in an airborne room with a good critical care team could, could care for a single complicated patient. It, it gets much harder with more than that. And, and certainly even a, even a good large referral critical care unit um, with, with one high IPC posture patient can really change the unit's workflows in a way that that might surprise you. And, and so they, they, they could, most, most good ICUs, for instance, could do almost any kind of care for a day or two. It's just what happens then, right, to, to their ability to continue to provide broad scope services to everybody else as well that's showing up. So it's a great question, but, but um, I don't think there's a just-in-time difference in the level of care per se. Um, other, other than perhaps close conversation with, with plastics and knowing who your burn people are, just in case the dermatologic manifestations get, get more complicated in a patient than you, than you expect. Burn care is different. Um, there, there is uh, our closest burn center, I believe, Angela is in Lincoln. Um, is that right, Rick? Yeah. And, and so um, that, I think that that was one thing that had come out from that conversation with Cat Morale that's probably worth talking about it in terms of thinking about robust networks of care and support, but that could probably be um, advice that happens remotely as well. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us for this hour. Is there something that we missed on asking that you think uh, people would be good to know about? I don't know. I just think we need to continue to, you know, take some of those lessons that we learned with the early days of COVID and use those here. This is not COVID. This is a different disease. This is a very, um, you know, a very uh, different scenario than what we originally encountered with COVID. But I think some of those lessons of all cases don't need to be tribal related. You know, we need to pay attention. We need to be vigilant. All of those things you know, we definitely can implement here as well. And so, you know, not making those those same mistakes that we made earlier on by saying, you know, oh no, this could never cause, I mean, the, the word never, I think, I'm not really sure that should be in, in infectious diseases or an epidemiologist vocabulary, honestly, because, you know, we learned with COVID, you know, we, we really can't, I mean, predictions are difficult and, um, you know, especially early on, I think we just need to continue to be vigilant, even in those, particularly in those non-emergency settings. I think emergency rooms are sort of used to being somewhat vigilant, like looking for travel-related cases and things like that. Uh, these individuals are not presenting, as we mentioned, often to emergency departments. They're going to their local physicians or their local providers. They're going to, you know, clinics or urgent care centers or wherever. And so, um, so that's something that just, just making sure that we maintain that, you know, that index of suspicion. Um, for people that that come in, regardless of their you know um, social network or their history of travel or any of that, we just have to remember that you know you don't have to be in a certain identified risk group necessarily um, to acquire this illness. Identify, so. isolate, and inform. Right? Yes, one hundred percent. I think identify is pretty important, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going. I'm going to be. I'm going to be subversive and throw out my my insidious edit on that that I've been pushing from the inside, which is it should be I cubed A, right? It should be identify, isolate, inform, and act. That's <laughs> good. There's usually an available action that anyone can do at their level. Uh, they have to make sure that they they act within their scope of care and IPC practice. But there's there's something to be done. 
but on en route to getting your your complicated cases to Professor Hewlett and the NBU. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like I said, I don't know that we're well. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but I. I'm just I, I am still concerned and I think a lot of a lot of providers may not necessarily know what to do if they see someone, you know, in their urgent care or their clinic or whatever, you know, who do you call, um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, you know, you're supposed to contact your local health department is how it's supposed to go in the in the beginning, <laughs> and the health department will assist with decision making regarding the need for testing, um, you know, isolation, other things. And so that's some that's the first step. Um, that I would recommend doing. Um, now, again, that being said, I, yeah, I mean, I'm still, obviously there's still a chance that we'll miss some cases here, but, um, but hopefully, hopefully the, the identify step is, is in play, but I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic sometimes when it comes to this sort of thing. And I just want to make sure that we're not, um, you know, we're not saying, oh, this individual didn't travel. So don't worry about it because that's really not what, what we're seeing with this outbreak. So. So yes, identify, isolate, inform, act. Yes, there it is. It's gonna be. It, we're, we're gonna get it out there. <laughs> yes. I, I have a feeling it might be on the headline for the the podcast episode. So I, I can make that happen. I know who does that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for dropping your wisdom with us today, guys. It was it was awesome. All right. Yes, it was very great. Thanks, nice everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank right. you. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us on Twitter in the conversation, and we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.